Good morning, Living Word. How are y'all doing this morning? Oh, this side is awake. Good morning, Living Word. How are y'all doing this morning? Yeah, awesome, awesome. Thank you guys for being good examples of this side. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is such an honor to serve you, to glorify you, and to exalt your name above all names. And Lord, I pray that you get all the glory this morning. Lord, I pray that while your sight and your love is on every individual in this room, that you will anoint me to only see you so that all glory goes to you. Lord, I pray that you'll take the coal of your Holy Spirit and touch my lips to only speak your word this morning. And you'll shut my mouth with anything that's of me. Holy Father God, it's an honor to be your vessel. I give you this for worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Jackie and I had been married less than a year. And I came home to our apartment broken into. I'd only been gone an hour. And the front door was smashed in. And stuff is missing and pawed through. And had my wife not been working at a summer camp, um, she would have been home. And it was three thieves. One of them was arrested later on two accounts of murder and confessed to breaking into our apartment. And I can, I can tell you that the feelings of missing things was very overshadowed by the feeling of being violated. The idea that people came into our apartment with nothing but malicious intent and stomped up our stairs and saw our wedding photos on the wall. Did they make crude comments to each other? That they went through our bedroom, the place that we feel most vulnerable. Did, were they hoping my wife was home? That they took our stuff. It, it was... It was uncomfortable. We, we spent the night away the first night, and then we came back after we had repaired our door. And I remember just wedging a chair between the door and the stairs. And we didn't want to, to turn our back on the door. We were uncomfortable. Everything was icky. We didn't want to undress to go to bed. It was just uncomfortable. They, they were our downstairs neighbors, in fact. So whenever they got into an argument outside of a porch, we sat ready to call the police, not knowing if they were coming in or not. It was really, really uncomfortable. Invaders had intruded our house. And this morning, I hope that lends a little bit of weight to the idea that God is dealing with intruders in his house. And he does not take lightly to it. It is violating, and he hates those things that are polluting his space. Let's look at 2 Corinthians together. 6, verse 16. Is this me? The connection? There are intruders in his house. Let's go to 2 Corinthians six sixteen. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We are the temple of the living God. 
Just as God said, I dwell among them and I walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. These idols are invasive, they're destructive, and they're pervasive. Let me swap this out. Testing one, two. All right, we're together. Minus the rhythm section. John clearly states his purpose for writing the book of John. Have you guys been enjoying this series? I've been like waking up excited on Sundays to come and listen to this series. He, John states his purpose right there at the end. It's in chapter 20, verse 31. These that I've written down, these stories, these words of Christ are written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. Life in his name. That is the purpose of the Gospel of John. And we have to keep that in our minds because he's going to come full circle in this story. Last week, Pastor Ben spoke on Jesus manifesting his glory through the wedding at Cana. Wasn't that a cool story? Water into wine. How cool is that? Now, what John does, and he uses it as a literary strategy, is he loves to take two stories and put them together so that we will compare and contrast those two stories. He does this with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. We're supposed to read these stories together and contrast them. And he's doing that today. And last week, Ben set up the tea for me. Because the wedding at Cana is meant to be read together with Jesus cleansing the temple. Let's ask some questions here. What was the purpose of the stone jars? For purification. The cleansing, right? How many were there? Six. In Judaism, seven is the perfect number. Six is imperfect. What was currently in them? Nothing. They were dry. They were empty. They stood in a corner. And what did Jesus do? He had them filled. How much? To the brim. And then something came out of the jars that had never been in them before. They only held water and out from them poured what Jesus put in them. The best. And John is making this point clear that the old covenant, the old law, was meant to reveal sin, but it did not cleanse it. It was insufficient, imperfect. God had not completed his plan yet. And as we jump into the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, the theme is exactly the same. He is going to come into what is empty and corrupt And he is going to show himself as the one who fulfills and is the perfect completion to God's plan. Sin has been revealed through the law and it will be dealt with through Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at our story. John chapter 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And within the temple grounds, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And those who were selling doves, he said to them, take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Right over their heads. And the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This is how Jesus' public ministry begins. Scholars believe there's enough differences in the details that this is not the same cleansing that we see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. That Jesus actually began his ministry with a cleansing the temple and then ended his ministry. So where this first miracle at Cana, this first expression of his glory happened behind closed doors, quietly, among the servants... This expression was very, very public. And it was the general public who were the partakers in this. Everyone in those courts was participating in what Jesus was doing. Most of them were heading for the door. Let's take a look at what Jesus is doing. John 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover celebrated their freedom from slavery in Egypt when they would take the lamb and they would bleed it out and paint the blood on the doorposts and God would pass over his wrath would be withheld from this family because of their obedience in the sight of the blood and they would celebrate this every year and it kicked off this triad of festivals that lasted all week and Jesus is making his pilgrimage it looks like from Luke he had done this every year of his life he's making his pilgrimage from Capernaum where he'd stayed a couple days after the, the really cool wedding And so he makes his way to the temple grounds. And here at Passover, the temple grounds would have been packed. It was their biggest celebration. It was like Christmas times 10. Because at Christmas, everyone isn't required to be at one place. And so Jews from all over the nation and all over the world were coming to Jerusalem. Where Jerusalem had a population of 1 to 200,000. At Passover, it would swell to a million Every room of every hotel was packed with multiple families. Every spare room in every personal home was filled with relatives. You had trouble getting through the streets. You had to have enough animals for everybody to give their sacrifices. Jerusalem was mayhem. It was Black Friday. It was packed. And the temple grounds made up about 40 acres of land. And at any given point of the day, there would be ten to 20,000 people packing those 40 acres. And in the courts, sin was an intruder. And it's not an intruder that God takes lightly to. It was an invader in his house. Number one that I want to communicate this morning is that sin is an intruder. Let's keep going. John 2, verse 14. And within the temple grounds, he found. That's key. Within the temple grounds. Where did he find it? At home. It had kicked in the door. He found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. The money changers were important. The temple required only a single kind of coinage. These coins from Tyre, which were known for the purity of their silver, And so Jews from around the world bringing their foreign money would have to exchange. Do you think the exchange rate might have been fair at the heyday of Passover? How are prices at the gas station when you get off the highway? 
you got to drive a few miles, right? No, they would inflate their prices. Their exchange rate was, was robbery. Up to 12.5% they were robbing people. And then you have these animal sellers, these merchants. And they're selling, they're accommodating every form of society. And God gave room for this in the law. Those who are wealthy would sacrifice a bull, the middle class a sheep, and the lower class doves. Out of God's grace for his people. And yet they brought these animals in to sell at exorbitant prices. Remember Black Friday, but reversed? Bad prices. And they, before, were selling outside the temple gates. They had moved into the temple gates. In fact, most scholars believe that there was a scheme going on between the priests and the money changers. Because... All of this activity coming into the temple courts had to be allowed and overseen by the high priest. And so many believe that what they would do is, as people were bringing their animals from faraway lands or wherever, they would bring them, and then the priest would say, nope, not good enough. But hey, we have over here that you can buy, if you really want to be holy, to give your sacrifice. Feel free to exchange your money. Isn't that crazy? Now, Jesus looks around and he sees corruption in three forms. The first form is robbery. God's people are being stolen from. In Luke, he looks around at them and he calls them a den of... That's right. But the second thing that's going on, and this one just, it should chap your hide, is that the temple was made up of layers. You had the outer court of the Gentiles. You had the court of women. You had the court of the Jews, only the Jews. And women could come inside if they were bringing a sacrifice. And then you have the interior holy place where only the priests could go. And then the deepest interior part was the Holy of Holies, one priest, one time a year. And so you zip out all the way out here to the court of the Gentiles, which only made up several acres. And the merchants and the animal sellers thought this was the perfect place to set up. And so they blocked and crowded the court of the Gentiles with their booths, with their tables, and with their animals. Now imagine for a second. I don't know, are there, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on that. Most of us aren't Jews. Imagine traveling faithfully to worship God. And when you arrive... It's like going to Walmart on Black Friday and trying to kneel in the aisles. No matter how faithful they may have come, there's no way that they were going to be able to worship the Lord with this mayhem. Worship was being blocked from God's faithful people by this. So we have thieves. We have people being blocked. They can't even worship. And then three is that they're selling righteousness. Greed was disguised with holiness and righteousness. Works righteousness had been elevated and genuine love had been downplayed. No matter how how genuine you might have been, when you get there, your heart was going to be hard and your heart was going to be distracted from the chaos until your worship was nothing more than just going through the motions. And Jesus looks at these three intruders. Ultimately, it's sin. And he responds in kind. 
People are going to a place of purification, and the place of purification itself is filthy. It's like taking your car to a 30-year-old automated car wash. It's all rusted out, it's blowing brown water, and there's debris and stones and the big sweepers. So when your car comes out the other side, it's worse off than it was before. And Jesus sees this, and he has righteous anger against it. Sin was keeping people in bondage. This temple was supposed to be holy. It was supposed to be set apart. But the songs of the faithful had been exchanged for the rhythm of clanking money and the chorus of moaning animals. The smell of incense had been replaced with the smell of manure. People were bending over tables, haggling in anger over prices, instead of bending over their knees in quiet confession. The place that should have been most sacred was being prostituted in the name of holiness. And Jesus responds. John 2.15, and he made a whip of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. And he overturned their tables. This is the most severe action we will see Jesus take. God's divine fury is put on display as he drives out the animals with their owners following after on their heels. Money is mixing on the ground. People are diving. Animals are running. Jesus has incited Pandemonium. And it's here that we witness an incredible downplayed miracle. Because they leave. The sellers and the money changers give no resistance to Jesus. They just leave. They had every angry to be, every right to be angry. They had every right to assault him. And they leave. Also, the temple guards don't arrest him. A hundred years prior to this, the temple courts had been covered in blood because the Jews were angry with that particularly high priest slash king. And so they started throwing lemons at him and insulting him. And he sent the guards into the people and they cut down 6,000 people in the temple courts. And Jesus does so much more than throw lemons and he's not arrested. Also, the Romans had set up Herod the Great had built this fort called the Fort of Antonia and it stood right against the temple wall And it was high so they could look down and supervise the courts. And if there was any any look of rebellion, they could send in immediately Roman soldiers to quell the crowd. And they're looking down at this chaos and do nothing. No Roman guards were dispatched. Jesus, through his divine authority and power over man's heart, sends them out. I love how Matthew Henry writes this. Excuse the old language. Christ's purging of the temple thus may be justly reckoned among his wonderful works. He did it without the assistance of any of his friends. He did it without the resistance of any of his enemies. There was a divine power put forth herein, a power over the spirits of men. Doesn't sin have a way of being an intruder? Doesn't it like to sneak in as an imposter? It likes to put on the sheep's clothing. It likes to look like a friend. 
Something enjoyable, something desirable. This represents a lure going through the water. If we have any fishermen in here. Oh, oh. It's almost like sin takes up a place in the passenger seat. And it puts up this pretty picture right in front of our face. And, and I don't know what or who is on your picture. But it's enjoyable. And it's amazing that comfortable and placated and blind will begin to drift from one lane into the next lane, over the median, and into oncoming traffic. And sin may plant us into a ditch that we get so stuck in. Sin may careen us into another car, hurting somebody else. Or sin might quietly lead us down an off-ramp so far that we don't know how to get back from. Sin is an intruder. It's invasive. It's contagious. And God responds with anger. That may we thank Jesus that he's willing to step into our lives and make a mess. Yeah, amen to that. Thank you, Jesus, that you would come in and you would rattle our cages a little bit, that you would wake us up, that you would be the one to drive out the sin that we let in. So number one, sin is an intruder. Number two, God hates sin. God loves his house. John 2, 16, let's keep the story going. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. I love that he calls it his father's house. They're going to try to stone him later when he compares himself to the father. This is a big statement that he verbalizes this. And yet, because it's his father's house is why he's zealous about it. I love this passage in Isaiah. It's like it was written for this. Isaiah 1, 11 through 18. This is so beautiful. What to me, this is God speaking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Josephus, the Jewish historian, believed that there was 125,000 sacrifices made at Passover. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? It doesn't matter how many you make. Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and calling of assemblies. I can't endure this sin and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. God hates sin. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Ooh, that's judgment. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. If you haven't picked up on it yet, the temple represents the spiritual state of Israel. And let's be a little honest with ourselves. The temple represents us. We let this intruder in under the guise of something acceptable. And God will not stand idly by when there's an invader in his house. 
John 2.17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. God hates sin and God loves his house. I love the disciples. Good for them. They're using God's word to recognize his works. That's pretty good. Atta boys. Let's look at the psalm that they're quoting. Psalm 69.9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a psalm by David. He's calling people to repentance, to proper worship. And the people are responding to it with hate. Their hate of God is being pointed and directed at David. But David's response is only more zeal and more love for his father. And the disciples see this quality in Jesus and they recognize it as a David-like quality. They recognize Jesus' zeal and his love as David's zeal and love. David, his great, 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 great grandfather. I love it. Jesus is furious, but his anger isn't rash. His anger isn't careless. In fact, it's calculated. It's purposeful. And he clearly articulates his expectations and he clearly articulates his reasons for acting like this. I love this so much. Jesus doesn't sin in his anger. We're like, yeah, I get that. He's Jesus. No, 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 no. I want to I flip, the, flip the script a little bit. Jesus doesn't even withhold sin in his anger. That's the best we can do. I got angry, but this time I didn't sin. No, no, no. It's the opposite. In wrath, Jesus commits righteousness. That is a godlike attribute. God's anger is just, it is good, it is holy, it is perfect, and it is in God's anger that we see him come after us with the cross of Jesus Christ. That is who our God is, and this is who Jesus is. Can a good God hate something? Absolutely. We hate cancer because it kills the ones we love. If someone was to hurt my family and I sat back and yawned, you wouldn't be convinced I loved them. Spineless love is hardly love. And this is why God hates all forms of sin. Because he's holy and because it's damaging his house. An intruder is in the gates. And it leads me to a question that I had to solve this past week. Why was Jesus so zealous about the physical bricks and mortar temple In one moment, and then in the next moment, totally dismissive about it as he declares himself as the temple. Like, why is that even, what is the point of this whole scene if you're like, yes, you are the God's presence on earth. You are the new temple. You supersede the old, empty, dry temple. So what was this all about? There are three, there are three forms of God's temple in scripture. There's the brick and mortar one. There is Jesus Christ who stands as our intermediary and the presence of God in man's world. And there is God's people. Jesus came onto the temple grounds and he saw people. He saw them being robbed. He saw them being blocked from worshiping the lover of their souls. 
And he saw them bite the bait of works righteousness. And he was not throwing people. He was not driving sin out of a building. He was driving an intruder out of the hearts of his people that he loved so much. We are God's house. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I dwell among them and I walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. You are God's temple. God formed mankind to be his house, to have a relationship with him. And we polluted ourselves with sin. We opened the door to this intruder. But it wasn't our house that we let sin into. We let it into God's house. And his white hot anger burns against it on behalf of his holy and on behalf of his love for us. Sin is an intruder. God hates sin and he loves his house, us. And number three, Jesus alone purifies his house. Ron and Melinda thought they had landed the dream house. It was 22 bedrooms on 75 acres, and they got it for a great deal outside of Austin, Texas. He was an executive in New York, and this was a great getaway for him. And the first clue that something was wrong was their four-year-old came down terribly sick, started coughing up blood. Then his wife got so sick that she had trouble standing. And finally, not only was he sick with the same symptoms, but he started losing his memory and had to resign from his job. They were forced to abandon their house. You guys know where I'm going with this, right, South Louisiana? They were forced to abandon their home when they learned that it had been poisoned with black mold from a leak in the downstairs bedroom. And it had spread under the beautiful wooden floorboards and infected every room in the house. What an intruder. You see, the Jews expected the Messiah to come and bring judgment against the Gentiles, the Romans. When in fact, when the Messiah came, he brought judgment first to his own house. There was mold And it was infecting every part of the place that he loved, of the people that he loved. But there are people under a promise. Oh, this is worth getting excited about, Living Word. We're a people under a promise because God has never looked at the people that he loves and sat back and yawned. Let's look at Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. Then Yahweh, God, whom you seek, Yahweh, God, will suddenly come where? To his people, to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure in the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
He is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold, and they will bring offerings. But they're not the blood of lambs, the blood of bulls that are imperfect, dry. No, they're righteous to the Lord. God hates sin, and God loves his people. And in the same way Jesus exceeded the water pots in Canaan, Jesus the temple is exceeding the temple. John 2.18, let's keep going. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these brazen things? I love it. The very people that let the corruption into the temple are challenging Jesus. That he doesn't have authority. Show us a miracle, Jesus. Convince us. And then we'll believe. No, they won't. John 12, 37, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe. And Jesus responds to them honestly anyway. He gives them the sign. John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. What a sign. Who has power over death but God himself? Who has the right to purify his temple but God himself? This is his house. Jesus is calling a shot like Babe Ruth. And it's huge. There's no way they could put the pieces together. They have no idea what he's talking about. Right over their heads. Why does he give them a cryptic answer? Matthew 13 tells us, Jesus uses parables to veil truth from those who are hard-hearted so that they won't believe. This is judgment. Jesus is judging the very people that let corruption into his house. Oh, let that chill go down your spine. He is keeping them in the dark to turn them over to their desires. So the Jews respond to him, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. I love that Jesus goes over their heads, but he reveals their hearts in this. This blew my mind. The Jews are wrong. Because this temple was built in 516 B.C. by their forefathers who were set free from Babylon, who came home and built the temple. And their forefathers stood in front of this temple and they wept because it was so inferior to Solomon's, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. It was, it was shabby compared to what they remembered. But 46 years ago, Herod the Great had taken on the project of reconstructing, expanding, and beautifying that old shabby temple. And their faith in responding to Jesus is not, we have the God of creation's presence among us. Their response is, sin was in the house, so we made the house prettier. We're spraying perfume on black mold. That's their response. That's their hearts. Everything is about a facade. Everything is a mask. Their pride was in a building. We can put on our best face. We can try to curb our behavior a bit, but we have no power over our human heart. All our attempts to be good, fall terribly short like those stone jars and like that building full of corruption. 
but Jesus. But Jesus, who saw sin in the house, gave himself as the perfect Passover lamb, who died on a cross of Calvary, and his blood splashed on the altar of Mount Golgotha for us, because only Jesus can purify his house. Self-reformation is pointless. And the Lord woke me up this morning with our closing illustration, and he decided to use me. Thank you, Lord. Because we can't fix ourselves. And one of the hardest things for me to do whenever I know that I'm going to be speaking is to get myself out of the way. Because I really, really, really Appreciate appreciation. And I wrestle so much to get over wanting my own glory, to stop rivaling God for his glory. And I have nothing that I can do. I can put on nice clothes. I can try to come up with fancy words. And yet the corruption in my heart still sneaks in because I want out of my insecurity affirmation over and over again. And so I have to come to a point that it's no longer about me. I can't fix me. Only Jesus can. And because of God's faithfulness, our God who sees every heart in this room, who knows the invader of every heart in this room and knows the invader in mine, can change a corrupt me. To love and speak his words. We can't fix ourselves. But God can. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold. No purification pots. Not a pretty building. Only Jesus himself has to come and do the purifying. We have come full circle now to John's purpose. That you might believe. John 2.22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. I love that John writes in hindsight, we were clueless guys. But we knew the scriptures, and we knew what Jesus said, and so we believed. Sin is an intruder. God hates sin and loves his house. We are God's house, which he is zealous for. Our self-reformation is futile, and Jesus alone can change a heart that we have no power over. There is no rag that we can wipe away our sin with. It has to be Jesus. It has to be an outside act from the God who created us. So I've got two challenges for you this morning. I ask you to do what the Lord has been challenging me with for the last week. Number one, that we act like his house is worth defending. We fight for it. We guard our eyes. We guard our lips. We guard our thoughts. And I'm telling you, if our eyes, ears, thoughts, and mouths are unguarded, it is not a behavior problem. It is a worship problem. So let's start acting like his house is worth fighting for. But how do we fight? And here's where the rubber meets the road for me this morning. And maybe I can share it with you. 
We surrender. We stop trying to do good stuff. We stop trying to look the part. We stop trying to spray perfume on the black mold that we have led in the front door. We just surrender. James 4, 7 through 8 and 10. This is it. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And until we've submitted ourselves to God, we won't be able to resist the devil. And he won't flee from us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We still can't draw near to him until we submit to him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Isn't this starting to sound like Isaiah? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Look at Isaiah. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds. From before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And then, I didn't finish reading it before. Who can do this? We have no power to do this on our own strength. And then, come now. Let us reason together. You've got nothing to bring here. The only way... You're going to get black mold. The intruder out of your life is if I show up. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like mold. Like wool. Like wool. No, I love you, Lord. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. Lord, I pray that you are empowering your people to defend your house and to surrender to you. Lord, do a work in my heart. And I pray, Lord, that you're doing the same work in every one of us. And whenever we have no power, I pray that we'll just submit and surrender. That we'll let you come into our lives And make some pandemonium so that you can get us right before a holy God who loves us enough to send the perfect sacrifice. Bloody, torn, insulted, and beaten. Enduring the full wrath of God on our behalf to purify his house. Oh Lord, that you would send your people as washed vessels into a filthy world. Lord, begin judgment at your house so that we can love the way you love, that we can walk in holiness as you are holy. Lord, I turn over my heart to you, that you will purge me. And Lord, I pray that every heart and mind in this room is turned towards you in the same surrender. I love you, Jesus. Thank you so much. We give you our lives today. In Jesus' holy, precious, glorious name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, Living Word.